Lord Jesus, there is so much here. So much beauty, so much honesty that sometimes it's hard to wrap our, our hearts and minds around it, Lord. Lord, guide us as we imbibe and ingest your, world, your word. And Lord, let it renew us from the inside out in ways that don't depend on us, but thankfully depend on you. Lord, thank you for this, this truth and this honesty and this beauty. And we pray it in your name. Amen. So this morning we're, this is the second in a kind of a mini series of, of three sermons looking at Psalms 101, 102, and 103 because they're very, very tightly related and they're all about spiritual growth. Last week we talked about the aspiration of growth and as it related to personal holiness and public justice. And this week, well, we're confronted with reality. <laughs> One of the most formative seasons of my entire life is also uh, easily the most painful. About four, after four years of, of a lot of uh, seminary education, and a year after graduating, I was still looking for a, a call, which is what pastors call a, a, a job. Um, uh, still looking for a job as a pastor, even though I'd been graduated for over a year. And there were 75 at the time, there were 75 students and graduates looking for every open position in our denomination. So it was nuts. I finally was hired and called as a pastor at a church just down the road from here in Broomfield called Rocky Mountain Presbyterian Church. And at that church, when we got there, we were, we were Hannah and I were excited. It was a dream. We, we had, like God had, had delivered us against the odds, and I, we got to be in Colorado. Like, this is amazing. It was about six months in to our time at that church when we realized that uh, to stay at that church meant and required a level of enduring spiritual, emotional, and verbal abuse, the likes of which I have not experienced uh, elsewhere. And it was not, this is, when I, when I, you have to take my word for it because the details are, are less important, but this was so much more than a personality conflict. This was a betrayal, this was, it had, it involved betrayed trust, my character was attacked, slandered, and nobody really knew about it in the church. It got so bad at one point, Hannah and I vividly still remember and talk about this every once in a while, uh, we, had, we, we reached our breaking point where all of this accumulated stress and the reality that was so terrible that we were in the midst of was, was just building up to this point where we had an argument over, I, I honestly don't even remember what it was, Hannah doesn't either, um, but it was in the context of all of this terrible stuff that we were trying to, to, to endure, and it, it wrecked us, and, and, and our, in this argument we had one night, um, I was so angry, um, I put my fist through drywall and punched a wall in frustration and anger. Uh, ironically, we ended up covering that over with a, uh, a framed Bible verse. Still working on that personal holiness part. Um, but it ended with, with me sobbing in the fetal position on our bathroom floor and Hannah spread eagle begging God to change something, anything in our backyard. 
Verses 1 through 2 of Psalm 102 say, Hear my prayer, O Lord, let my cry come to you. Do not hide your face from me in the day of my distress. Incline your ear to me. Answer me speedily in the day when I call. It says it a lot more eloquently there uh, than I was able to muster up on the floor of our bathroom, but it's the same gist. And verses 3 through 11 are, are, are explaining what has brought the psalmist to that point, which is basically this, that reality is a sledgehammer to our self-reliance. And if we let it, it can make room for vulnerability and honesty and relief with God. So let's talk about this. And that's, that's, that's the kind of the, you know, the main point for Psalm 102. But verses 3 through 11 are describing in ways that are only poetry can that reality sucks. It just, reality sucks. And it's so validating, right? What's interesting about the language of this, uh, of this psalm in general, but this, this part of the psalm especially, is it, it doesn't actually say much about why the psalmist is experiencing this. In verse 10, it says, Because of your indignation and anger, for you have taken me up and thrown me down. But it doesn't say anything about, like, you're angry at me, God, because I've sinned, like a psalm of penitence uh, might articulate. It's just, he might be caught up in God's justice in some way. It's just very ambiguous. And the point of that is to invite our empathy and identification with it. Right? It, it, it does that by expressing what it's like to experience that reality sucks. In all of its grief, and all of its disappointment, frustration, its agony without relief, not just emotional and existential agony, but also physical agony, I, it feels like, I mean, it just sums up, I love that as much as you can love a line like this, uh, for I eat ashes like bread and mingle tears with my drink. It's like the tears are like the bitters and the necessary ingredient for a cocktail of suck. You can quote me on that. But reality, like, like one of the things that is, is fascinating about this, I often during sermon prep um, use, if you're not familiar with this, it's called the message. And it's Eugene Peterson, he paraphrases an English translation. So it's one step removed from a translation. So it's less accurate. But what he's doing with that is he tries to like get to the heart of the thing that's being said there and bring it out so it's easier to see. And normally it really helps, the language really helps kind of illustrate, give you an appreciation for it. It's telling then that the message was not helpful for this psalm because the language is already just so vivid. The message like couldn't really improve on it or make it more dramatic and identifiable. And it is dramatic and identifiable not just because reality itself is painful. It, yes, it sucks, but not just because it's hard. It sucks because we all know that this isn't the way it's supposed to be, Right? Young pastors eager to learn from their older and wiser predecessors are not supposed to have their first experience in ministry defined by spiritual, emotional, and verbal abuse. The church is not supposed to be a place where you have to worry about like catastrophic betrayal. A friend of mine who is, is a pastor, and I want to just disclaimer, I'm not trying to make this entire point about pastors, it's just that's who all of my friends are, those are the illustrations I have, right? Um, but a friend of mine who's a pastor, uh, in response to some of the things he preached after George Floyd was killed in the turmoil that, that, that racked the church and the country in those months ensuing, 
In response to that, one of his elders and a staff member both called Child Protective Services on him because they were genuinely convinced that there's no way someone, a white pastor, could care for and adequately love their two black adopted children based on what he was preaching, which was just scripture. Newly married couples are not supposed to have to endure the consequences of each other's childhood trauma. Tribalism is not supposed to divide that which Christ died to bring together. We're not supposed to spend our entire lives fighting depression and anxiety. We all have a lot of reason to be as honest as Psalm 102 is about how much reality sucks. And it's important to allow that to disturb us and the language and the honesty of Psalm 102 to disturb us because it is so easy to distract ourselves into oblivion, to depend not on God, but to depend on our binge-watching or our overworking or our overstressing and our overworrying. Verses 3 through 11, they're just, they're honestly articulating this gap between aspiration, like we talked about last week, and reality in order to invite and give us permission to do the same with God. And that gets into our second point here, which is really throughout this entire psalm, this is the entire point of the psalmist's honesty, is that reality also refocuses us. Reality refocuses us in two directions, especially first on our infinite God, it refocuses us on our infinite God. I say that language is very specifically chosen, right? Because the point is not the cause of our affliction, right? At no point in this psalm does the author of this psalm say, God, would you alleviate my circumstances? Verses 1 through 2 say, Lord, I just want to know you're there. Can you move toward me? I have such need of you. The point is that God co-ops this normative, predictable, normal, predictably normal aspect of life, of living in a fallen world. God takes that, and then he uses it to, to, to redirect our focus and our gaze on him. How many of you have said, you don't have to raise your hand or anything, but like how many of you have said, and, and also just kind of marveled in how confusing it is, because I've been there too, about how you, you feel closer to God in crisis? Like when the rug is pulled out from underneath you are some of the sweetest times where you're like, I actually believe you're there, God. That's not because the crisis itself brings us closer to God. It's that God is actually co-opting and redeeming and using that crisis to make him more real and bigger in our sight. It's how he directs and, and pulls our, our gaze away from navel-gazing toward him. And if Jesus, like this is good news for us because if Jesus, like think about how amazing this is, he co-opts the, the single worst form of execution ever invented by broken humanity's creativity to literally save the world. Like he used our nightmares, used and weaponized against our fellow man, our neighbor, and he's like, that thing? I'm going to redeem. I'm going to use that. 
whatever it is that you're wondering if God can use and redeem, we can look at the cross and know the answer is yes. He can. The other way that reality redirects and refocuses our gaze is on the future church. Let me read verse 18 again. He says, it says, let this be recorded for a generation to come. It's for their sake. So that a people yet to be created may praise the Lord. It's not for people yet to be created, but a people yet to be created. He's, the psalmist is not talking about Israel. He's, he's actually looking into the future in some sense and, and realizing that Israel may not be around forever, and, but God is going to continue in his covenantal faithfulness. He's actually talking about the church. He's talking about us. Let me, read, look, look, let me read that again. Look, let this sink in. Let this be recorded for a generation to come. That's us. So the people yet to be created may praise the Lord. The psalmist is saying, God, use this pain. Redeem it. Let it proclaim your steadfast love and faithfulness so that others would see and marvel at the wonder of your love. In verse 18, the author of Psalm 102 is praying for you. And that is recorded in God's word as scripture. That's so meta <laughs> and beautiful. It begs the question too, when was the last time we prayed for people who would never even hear our name. Never mind, we would get to know or be alive when they are. Like, that's just, like, think about how different of a prayer that is from, God, would you improve and change my circumstances? Would you make life easier for me? Would you give me more bandwidth so I feel like I could grow better and more? The, the psalmist is so captured by God and the reality of God in the midst of that, that he forgets about himself and becomes consumed with care and concern and love for a people not even born yet. If there is anything that we need refocusing on as like just speaking about the, the American church, Protestant church, it is that. We are so self-interested as a people. We are so spiritually narcissistic. And, the, and, and we, need, we need to wake up to this crisis because the American Protestant church is actually paying this price now in our spiritual navel-gazing, and that is a mass exodus from the church unlike anything we have seen since we started actually keeping data and statistics about this kind of thing. Um, I'm, I want to camp out here for a minute because this is so important for us to actually appreciate the enormity of what I'm describing. Uh, a, a, I, th I think he's actually a political science professor at Eastern Illinois University, um, but he, he studies the intersection of politics and religion. His name is Ryan Burge, and he has done some amazing uh, research on this, and I'm going to have two uh, different graphs on the slide behind me. This first one is uh, survey responses on how important is, re is religion to you and it starts with the silent generation, then goes boomers, Gen X, millennial, Gen Z. Blue is not at all. Red is very important. Yellow and orange are in between. It's, the stair steps are dramatic in how consistent this is happening. This is just religion. This isn't just Christianity. This isn't 
This is not asking about, is your faith as a Christian important to you? This is just, this is tracking a trend what the, the demographers are calling right now the rise of the nuns. And it's not a Quentin Tarantino movie. Um, it's a N-O-N-E-S. Oh, that, was, that was funnier than you gave it credit for. Um, I roll. Uh, it's N-O-N-E-S, referring to people who mark the nun box in terms of when asked uh, what their religious preference is in a survey. Uh, and if you go to the next one, this is even more stark and disturbing. These are like dot, uh, a dot matrix to illustrate from left to right, 1972 to 2021, age being at the bottom, youngest to top, oldest, the distribution of weekly church attendees. Guys, we shouldn't see a point down here. We should see a line horizontally. This is concerning. It's devastating, actually. In 2002, the average, the median churchgoer was 49 years old. 19 years ago, 20, or sorry, 20 years ago, 49. Last year, the median age was 59. To age... For the median age to increase by 10 years over a 20-year period means that half of those who are continuing in weekly attendance at the age of 18 are not continuing in church at the age of 18 now. That's, this is, we're looking at a demographic implosion, okay? Why is this happening? I'm convinced that an author by the name of Tara Isabella Burton has just... I don't think anybody has explained it as succinctly and as powerfully as she has. She says this in her book, Strange Rights. Today's nuns have grown up seeing religion as a social and communal institution, a nice-to-have teaching good values or solidifying family bonds, but not necessarily as a core part of their meaning or purpose. They're the kids who saw their parents attend church or went, who went to Sunday school, but were nevertheless acutely conscious that their parents didn't actually believe all that stuff. On the one hand, they're disillusioned by what is, in most cases, their parents' religious tradition, which has failed to provide them with a coherent account of meaning and purpose in the world. Some of you may be thinking and asking yourselves, that was a lot of statistics. What does that have to do with me? How, like, how do I even change that? Let me to put a fine point on this. If you want your kids to know and love Jesus, you have to love his bride enough to adopt her meaning and purpose as your own. It's really what it comes down to. If you want your kids to leave the church and not know Jesus, then live like Jesus wants you to find your own meaning and purpose and treat the bride as a disposable commodity. I probably don't need to connect the dots to you for table kids. Reality, what this is illustrating is that reality is a stress test that, that, focus, that reveals whether we are focused on ourselves or in the direction that God, that, that is actually best for us and most satisfying and the most flourishing and the most humanizing, both for us and for others, and that is on our infinite God and the future church. Here's the good news, because uh, just to validate, everything I've talked about so far is super heavy. And if, if it feels heavy, that's good because Psalm 102 is heavy. <laughs> and we don't get the freedom or the, the privilege of 
of acting like that's not the case. But in this, we have an ultimate reality that redefines some things and is, is so beautiful. And that ultimate reality is Jesus. I'm going to turn to Hebrews 1 because Hebrews 1 quotes the last few verses of this psalm almost verbatim. It's referencing it explicitly. In verse 8, and then skipping because it 8 identifies who's speaking to who, verse 8 in Hebrews 1 says, but of the Son, he says, referring to God, and you, Lord, laid the foundations of the earth in the beginning, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. They will all wear out like a garment. Like a robe, you will roll them up. Like a garment, they will be changed, but you are the same, and your years will have no end. The author of Hebrews is saying that Psalm 102 is actually about Jesus and to Jesus. He's quoting and saying that, that, that this is actually being said from God the Father to God the Son, and in so doing makes what one commentary author says uh, the, is the single strongest attribution of divinity to Christ in the New Testament. So when it says in verse 12... But you, O Lord, are enthroned forever. You are remembered throughout all generations. He's, the psalmist is, is talking about Jesus. That he is reigning in and ruling over the reality, even the broken, sucky parts of reality. Jesus is still king, and in the midst of that. Do you, how many of you have been following like the space stuff that's been in the news recently, especially the, the Webb Space Telescope and the images that are coming out. It's, it's a stunning. It, let's go to that picture. This is, uh, if I remember correctly, this is actually the first image that the telescope actually produced. It's, it's about a million miles away from Earth. Uh, it's like hold my beer to the Hubble Space Telescope and is, is stunning. In this one picture, every single pinprick of light you see in that picture is another galaxy. Okay, there are thousands of galaxies you can see in this picture if you were like holding up like this close, right? Blew it up. Thousands, plural. Thousands of galaxies. And it's been really fun to see people marveling over the, these images that are coming up. And, but, but there's something about it that's been unsettling for me that I haven't been able to articulate until I heard somebody else, uh, a podcaster, describe it, and he was arguing with the other people on his podcast, and he's like, no, I don't think this is that amazing, actually. He's like, are you kidding me? This is terrifying. And he, and, and he, because this image represents a part of the sky. Like, if you look up in the sky, it represents that part of the sky that is as big as if you took a grain of sand and held it at arm's length. And there are thousands of galaxies in that speck. I don't have, like I, I physiologically cannot fathom the worlds, the stars, the solar systems, the complete ecosystems that we don't even understand or, or have a category for. There are events happening and that have happened millions of years ago that we are, see, we are seeing now. Like the, the darkest and hardest to see uh, pinpricks of light that are like, like deep dark red, that's only visible because of this telescope. And that is light 
that has been traveling from galaxies literally billions of light years away that we are now seeing now, such that they knew those galaxies may not exist anymore because the time it took the light from that galaxy to travel to that telescope and then beam down to here, they could have either imploded entire galaxies or collided with another galaxy and they no longer exist, never mind are in the same place. They will perish, but you will remain. They will all wear out like a garment. You will change them as easy as you change a robe, and they'll pass away, but you are the same. And your years have no end. That God created all that, did all that, as one cosmic sermon illustration to remind us that if our, our minds cannot comprehend or wrap around that, we cannot fathom an infinite, eternal God. And that God, if Hebrews 1, quoting Psalm 102, is accurate, and it is because Scripture, we don't doubt that, then verses 3 through 11 were said by Jesus. Verses 3 through 11 were said by Jesus. Jesus said, for my days pass away like smoke, and my bones burn like a furnace. Because of my loud groaning, my bones cling to my flesh. I, I lie awake all the day my enemies taunt me, for I eat ashes like bread and mingle tears with my drink. Jesus, the creator of all of those things, was also loved even greater. He loved even greater such that he allowed himself to be constrained and limited in human form and was then crucified. What I'm trying to articulate and bring out and get past the, the kind of like religious mumbo-jumbo language that we often just kind of read and kind of go past and don't really fully do the business with is, that, is these three things about when we have an ultimate reality in Jesus. One Jesus went before you in his affliction. Your complaint is not strange or alien to him. He voiced it first. When he said, Eloi, Eloi, Sabachthani, from the cross, he said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He lost far more than any we have lost in our afflictions than we ever, than we ever will. He's a great high priest who is sympathetic, Hebrews says, with our weaknesses. Number two, is this Jesus who created all? Can you put the other picture back up? That guy who made all that just because is with you in your suffering, in your affliction, always. That cosmic God is intimately indwelling you. He's unchanging. He's eternal. He doesn't wear out or get tired like galaxies do. That's an... That's <laughs> Thirdly, Jesus' crucifixion and resurrection become an our, our roadmap and pattern for spiritual growth. 
that resurrection comes on the other side of death. That, if that, and if that is true and if that is the case, then there is no affliction that can keep us from God or even more importantly, God from us. And there is nothing that we need fear in this life that God can't or won't use to redeem or grow us. I'm going to quickly run through. I'm right in between. I have this section that I was like, if I run short on time, I'll cut it. But if I have enough time, I'll, I'll, keep, I'll keep going. And I'm somewhere in between, of course. And so I'm going to do this quickly. But if you have more questions about this, you can ask it in the Q&A. But in trying to kind of take like all of this majesty and glory, trying to figure out like how do I summarize this and put this into something actionable for us. And so I've got four kind of myths and realities of spiritual growth based on this, right? The first is this. The myth is that, that growth ignores affliction. In other words, to be mature means to be unbothered by how much reality sucks, and we just have to, you know, rub some dirt on it and keep going because you can perk up a little camper, and that's actually maturity, right? That it, it, but this, and, and that somehow dismissing or pretending like reality doesn't suck is actually like godliness. And I, I know I'm kind of saying this in a, with a snarky attitude, uh, especially since, like, literally we all do this. Um, but, like, I, I say that because in, in that way because I want us to realize how ridiculously we live sometimes, where we, where we act like we can't be honest about how much reality sucks, especially with God. Never mind God's people. The reality is growth laments affliction. This is written, Psalm 102 is written explicitly in a way that is intended to invite us into radical honesty, uncomfortable, socially unacceptable honesty with God because he ain't scared. We can be honest with him. The second myth and reality, the myth is this, that growth somehow prevents affliction. Like, what I mean by that is, like, if we, we carry around assumption, assumption, and if there is any one of these four that I, like, feel most acutely, it's this one, that, like, if we're doing it right, it's not going to hurt. Like, whatever that is. I interpret so way too often things being difficult or things going badly as if, like, well, if I could have just been a better pastor or if I could have just been a better leader or if I could have just been a better father or husband or friend that this bad thing is happening because I suck and not reality. Okay, it might be because I suck. Not ruling that out. We're not mutually exclusive. What I'm trying to caution against, though, is applying God's sovereignty to a finite human being. Because reality is growth actually guarantees affliction. If you are growing spiritually more mature, if you are becoming more Christ-like, you will also experience his hurt. Because you cannot live in a Christ-like way in a world that is broken without going against the grain and getting splinters. I had a professor who said that very poignantly and, and memorably that the most dangerous thing you can ever pray for is for God to grow you. Because it's guaranteeing that God will start using and allowing hard things and affliction so that, he can, so that he can do that work. Right? This isn't new. Jesus said this in John 15 when he's talking about the true vine. He said, every branch of me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes 
so that it bears more fruit. I know this is obvious, but it bears worth pointing out that pruning hurts. It will cut you, but it bears fruit. Number three, affliction is this is the myth. Affliction prevents growth, right? In other words, we feel like we have to fix our circumstances in order to have the bandwidth to grow, to be able to come to church more often, <clears throat> uh, to, to, to read our Bibles, to pray, to actually like, like invest in community and allow a community to invest in us. Like I actually had, I've, I've talked to some of you who said things like, I don't want to commit to a community group right now because I don't, uh, or I don't want to be in a community group right now because I can't commit to community as if the only thing that you're going to experience in there is you offering community to other people and not also receiving it. Like you actually just said, you just articulated your need for the very thing you're going to opt out of. It's a community defined by grace. You can come and receive. Come and come. But you have to come. The reality of this is affliction actually incentivizes growth. And I'm using that word incentivizes very intentionally because like I said earlier, there's nothing holy or good about affliction itself. It's how God uses and co-ops it and redeems it. The problem is not our lack of time or energy, but that God is trying to conduct an intervention with addicts who are hell-bent on avoiding him in the name of seeking him. Fourth and final. And then I'm going to do say one more thing, and then we're going to jump into questions. The last myth is that growth is for me. That it's all about our potential, our lifetimes, our plans. But that's actually not in Scripture. It doesn't say that ever anywhere. And Psalm 102, like, literally doesn't have a single word about that in there. The entirety of his concern and the entirety of Scripture's concern is that our growth, and this is the reality, is for the sake of edifying the church and loving our neighbors ourselves. Like, when we understand that, like, that's only possible if we are dependent on God in such a way that we can trust, we, we trust Him with our growth and with our whatever it is we're worried about getting through our growth. Then we can be self-forgetful and love our neighbors ourselves. Actually, I remember uh, just... I remember Hannah and I, we were part of a church plant in St. Louis before we moved here. Uh, and we, I re, like from the very beginning, we were, you know, I was not a pastor as part of it, but I was a seminary student and we were uh, members of the launch team. Uh, and I remember the first time we went back to that church, it was probably like a year and a half, maybe two years um, after we moved here. And we walked through the front door and like they do the passing of the peace too. And somebody was like, hey, you know, when did you first heard, when did you hear about City Church? And I was like, man, like, when we thought of the name in the core group, and it was, there was something, like, freakishly amazing about rea realizing that this thing that you were a part of and you poured into, like, they don't even know who you are anymore. That's awesome. Like, I know that, I, I don't, I'm trying to figure out how to describe how amazing it is, because it's just like, you mean you were forgotten? Like, yes, that's great. I don't understand that either, um, but it is. Okay, let me, let me, I want to bring some resolution to where I started in this, and then we'll, we'll, I'll take some questions, but um, 
in this season that I refer to as my most formative and painful ever, I've ever been in in life, um, in this season, about a few months after we realized this was going to be really, really hard, uh, a friend of mine and a mentor who's my, uh, a preaching professor in seminary, his name is Greg Johnson, uh, I reconnected with him, and he, could, he knew something was not right. And he pulled it out of me. And for the next two years, he gave me two hours on the phone every single week. And he would preach to me and remind me and encourage me. And one of the things that he would say to me was that too many leaders become successful before they learn to suffer well. He said, I know this is not, it doesn't feel this way, but this is God being very good to you and very kind to you. And I want you to hear that. That in your affliction, I know it doesn't feel that way right now. But too many people go on through life without ever actually experiencing the satisfying goodness of God. And he loves you too much to let you stay focused on yourself. He also was right, Greg. He was right. And I've reflected on this actually a lot in light of the pandemic because I don't, I don't actually think I would have survived 2020 and 2021 if I hadn't gone through that season both with Greg's support and also affliction's sucky reality, right? I'm, li- I'm actually only still in ministry because God allowed that to happen, to be totally honest. But there's also something more important there that gets to that last point of that, who is this for? Because the other thing that Greg preached mostly to me, sometimes at me when I needed it still, I didn't want to hear it, was Colossians 1.24, where Paul says, Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake. Speaking Paul to the church. And in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is, the church. And Greg would tell me that besides apologizing for that never actually being on a pastor's job description, and having a heads up, he would talk about how if you never have success in the way that you would hope for when you started this call, but you taught a congregation and modeled how to suffer well, you will have done more for them. Because we live in an age where we can actually avoid the worst of afflictions and therefore not depend on God. And so I say all this <laughs> to encourage you that you probably don't actually have a clue the ways in which God will use your afflictions to redeem and comfort other people. And that's actually a lot more satisfying than, than, than you expect. Okay, let me take a couple questions here. And a couple because there are nine. <sighs> okay. Do you think the statistics reveal a fail flaw in modern church culture? Yes. And if so, I would love to hear how the table is working toward new statistics. Keyword, working toward. Thank you for teaching this morning. Um, That is a really long answer. I actually, one of the things I'm really looking forward to with the membership class that we're doing on September 17th, you can save the date, mark your calendar, and come. Uh, Attending the membership class does not obligate you to become a member. You don't have to. But I'm going to be talking about it a lot there because I think it's important for anyone who's opting into the table as a member to understand, like, this is where we're going. This is how, this is kind of what we're up against in some ways. And this is going to require a pretty different way of looking at church and the world. I will say, um, 
that if you stick around and you hear sermons, you're going to hear, like, everything you hear from me is going to be an answer to that question. Uh, I'm sorry, because there's the, I wish I could go more. That That's just a huge question. It's a very good one, but it's huge. Okay, American church has such a convoluted reputation, especially among millennials, Gen Z, etc. How do we break the stereotype down among our individual non-Christian communities in a way that makes them feel welcome, accepted, and wanted by the church? Also, great question, uh, but like, I think it starts with Psalm 102, frankly, right? I think we have to be honest about that. I think we have to be honest where the church has earned that reputation, because in many ways, th- those graphs would not be those graphs if, if we took and adopted the bride's meaning and purpose for our own. Because that means we wouldn't be importing our agenda into the church in a way that actually kept us thinking like it's a good thing for the church to not expose abuse where it happens. Like that it could be a good thing to cover up that kind of thing. That's ridiculous. An unbiblical, satanic, demonic, evil, wicked, insert hyperbole here. Straight from the pit of hell and has nothing to do with scripture or Jesus. I think it means confessing and repenting of that. And I think the repentance part that goes beyond just saying that means modeling something different and, and, and doing and being the church in a way that invites people in and is hospitable and flourishes anyone and everyone we come in contact to. No pressure. We might need Jesus for that. Okay, uh, let me do, try to do two more real quick. Can we communicate a coherent sense of meaning and purpose in the world via Christianity to our children without doubling down on certainty and cheap answers? Also, yes. I thank you for answering yes or no questions. It means I can avoid having, you know. Uh, It seems like this mistake has been made in spades in our culture and is backfiring profoundly. Um, I agree. Uh, But how can we communicate a coherent sense of meaning and purpose in the world without doubling down on certainty and cheap answers? I really, I, I keep coming back to honesty. Read Psalm 102 to them. We can validate that, that when we are, like, okay, if we're begging God to answer our prayer and come near, it means we in some way feel like that's not happening, and that's not very, there's not much certainty there, right? Faith is about something we can't see. That's okay. That doesn't make it less real, and it's actually that assumption that that, that, that is the case is, let me pause and just summarize it this way. Certainty is what replaces embodiedness. Certainty became necessary a couple, few generations ago because we forgot what it looked like to embody Christ in community. And we stopped taking the church that seriously. The church became a means to an end and not also an end. Body means bride and both. When you miss one, bad things happen. Okay, last question. Do you think part of the reason for the falling away from the church movement is because the American version of church often portrays God as a cosmic vending machine, and when reality sucks happens, we assume the cosmic vending machine is broken, so we look elsewhere to deal with the harshness of reality? Yes, and thank you for asking that, because you just said what I was trying to say so much better. We need to reevaluate our understanding of who God is and focus on our union with God. 100% agree. You know, we... That, that is especially what I was trying to get at with the, 
this idea that we go to God and the reason why we pray is to, to ask him to change our circumstances. And implicit in there is that we assume that God wants us to be happy. And he does, but that's not actually what he wants most. He wants us to be holy. And that means with him. And he will use happiness or affliction to get there with us because he loves us too much not to. Okay. All that said, I, I, th- I love, by the way, and just to peel the curtain back a little bit, one of the reasons why we do communion every week and why it follows Q&A and the sermon is because it's, it's kind of this implicit accountability for me, right? It means that I can't actually leave or end a sermon without coming to the table, without the most important thing, which is, which is the sacrament of communion, the Last Supper, the Lord's Supper, however you call it, okay? And what this offers us in light of Psalm 102 is that Jesus, on the night that he was betrayed, he, he was with his disciples and he said, this isn't going to go how you think. Reality sucks. But rather than protect myself from it or keep you from it, I'm going to do something better and be with you in it. And so he took the bread, he broke it, he said, this is my body broken for you. Likewise, he took the wine, he poured it out, and he said, this wine is my blood. It is the blood of the new covenant. It is given for the forgiveness of sins. In other words, nothing you experience in this reality will ever take you away from the, your ultimate reality in me. That can't change. It is sealed not just symbolized, it is sealed in my blood. And as often as you eat this bread and you drink this wine, you proclaim that the way up is the way down, that the way out is the way further in, that the way that the church transforms and changes is to rely on God for our security, for our identity, for our dignity, value, and worth, and let him do the fruit-bearing work in and among us. If that is your hope, and I mean, I mean like just a little bit, this is for you. This is for your nourishment. Jesus gives his church, his mysterious presence in and through our taking of communion together to nourish us in the harshness of reality and all of its suckiness. But he's good. He doesn't change. He doesn't wear out like galaxies do. Let's pray. Jesus. Jesus, I, I, I don't think there's anyone who I don't think there's anybody who is not really well acquainted with exhaustion now. And whatever the cause of that exhaustion or affliction, whether it is acute or acute or chronic, severe or mild, Lord, help us to see you in our midst. I pray that you would nourish us in a way that is, yes, ordinary as we do this every week, yet extraordinary in light of what your word has brought us this morning. Lord, it's by your power that any of this can happen. And even the affliction that we are going through as a church in the, in the, in the, the global sense and what's going on in the world, Lord, it is all opportunity that you can redeem because you redeemed us through a cross. 
So Lord, nourish us with that truth as our ultimate reality. And we pray this in your name. Amen.